and welcome back to the Practical Neurology Editor's Choice podcast for 2022. I'm Amy Ross-Russell, a neurology trainee in Wessex. I'm joining you from Winchester today and I'd like to wish everyone a very happy 2022. We're kicking off the year with another fantastic paper and a familiar voice. I'd like to welcome back Professor Sarosha Rani, who is a Professor of Autoimmune Neurology at the University of Oxford and heads the Oxford Autoimmune Neurology Group. Hello, Professor Irani. Hi, Amy, how are you? Well, thank you, and you? Okay, good, thanks. And also welcome for the first time, Dr. Sophie Binks, who is a clinical research fellow completing her PhD in the field of autoimmune neurology and a trainee in the Oxford region. Hello, Sophie. Hello, thank you for inviting me to join the podcast. So their review, which is our editor's choice for February 2022, is paraneoplastic neurological syndromes, uh, giving a practical approach to diagnosis and management. And it's a beautifully clear and structured walk through paraneoplastic syndromes, focusing on common presentations and taking us through what we know at present and what's helpful for our clinical practice. I should just start by mentioning your sister review and the previous podcast, which was the October Editor's Choice, and is still available as a podcast on the archive. So do look that up because I think that will complement this really nicely. I've always found antibody-mediated syndromes quite daunting. There's a, a huge breadth of antibodies. There's all different names that are very hard to remember and targets. And that review and podcast were really helpful in understanding the mechanisms of autoimmune encephalitis, but also in preparing for this, in sort of having a, a framework to pin it on. I wonder if we just start by outlining why it's important to recognise these syndromes. What is the benefit of knowing about these? Why do we need to recognise them? And, and how many should we expect to be seeing? There's a very tight relationship between these paraneoplastic syndromes and various forms of cancer. Um, so I think one of the really important reasons to recognise these conditions is that because often they will herald an oncological diagnosis, which is crucial to recognise very serious conditions such as small cell lung cancer, ovarian cancer and breast cancer, to name some of the commonly associated cancers with these autoantibodies. And as I say, often the um, syndrome will precede the neurological manifestation. So, so that allows for that cancer to be picked up and appropriately treated. In addition to that, these syndromes can be disabling and um, distressing as conditions in of themselves. So obviously recognising them does allow us to do um, symptomatic treatment. Although, as I think we'll discuss within this um, conversation, that some of the conditions associated with intracellular antibodies don't always respond very well to immunotherapies. But there are some, for example, um, MAR2 with testicular cancer in men and the MGLUR autoantibodies that do respond well. And those are definitely worth picking up for early immunotherapy. Thanks. And what's, what sort of numbers are we talking about? Are these, uh, are these common conditions? Are we missing them? Well, we think they probably are more common than are currently detected. So recent epidemiological studies suggest that about one in 300 or so cancers are associated with a paraneoplastic syndrome. But epidemiological studies probably place that these are being picked up at about sort of one in 100,000. So we know cancer is very common. One in three people in this country will get diagnosed with cancer at some point. So there's, there's clearly a mismatch there between those figures. And that suggests that some of these syndromes are not being detected. 
just one other thing um, to highlight that in one of the papers we referenced by Hebert, um, which is a recent review of pyroneoplastic syndromes in France, there's a heat map in that paper, which shows how many of, of the pyroneoplastic syndromes are diagnosed per region. And there's quite a big difference, actually. Some of the regions uh, are diagnosing far more of these um, pyroneoplastic conditions than others, which suggests, you know, awareness is quite important in terms of picking these up and that some centres are perhaps more proactive, detecting these more frequently and that in other regions there's an underdiagnosis. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things I found difficult when, when preparing this or I find difficult thinking about these is knowing where to start. Do you think we should start thinking about these as a, a phenotype or a syndrome? Do we focus on the antibody or, or do we think about the cancer? How do we structure our understanding of these syndromes? I think we definitely go clinically and I think that for all these syndromes and you know broadly there are a few key categories that these syndromes can fall into and it's the rapidity I think and the nature of the progression that I think are the key common feature to most of them not all of them but most of them and I think we should start at that because seronegative disease is increasingly well described just last year another two antibodies described in the field you know, the year before another one or two. So I don't think we can rely on the antibodies per se. And also we know that the commercial testing kits that are used to detect these antibodies both pick up false positives and false negatives. So I think we really have to go clinically. And I think it comes back to the previous question of why it's important to diagnose these conditions and think of them is the, the other reason is because, the, you know, the cancers are sometimes really small. And so where we might have otherwise called them incidental or squinted at them on a scan, we take them really seriously and, and, and would then think of resecting them on that basis. So I think go clinically always in these diseases. And I just wanted to add one extra comment to that. That was one of the reasons for structuring the review in the way it was written, was that each sort of section is a clinical presentation to sort of sort of think, well, I see someone with cerebellar symptoms, which antibodies could I think of screening for in this patient? And that was partly to help me as well in the way that I kind of group um, these syndromes, because I agree there's lots of autoantibodies. If you're not working in this field, it can sometimes seem a bit of a maze. So hopefully having a, a picture in your head of a, a sort of patient presentation can help you then associate the key antibodies to think of in that situation. Yeah, absolutely. And and you're right that the paper is beautifully structured to take you through those examples. So you, you say be, be led by the clinical syndrome. So recognise particular clinical syndromes. And um, then I suppose within your description, when you see a patient of that clinical syndrome, it then included in your surgical sieve is an autoimmune process or a potentially paraneoplastic process. What do you think are the really the most important phenotypes for people to to remember to think about paraneoplastic syndromes? I guess it's cerebellar and then a multifocal encephalitis. So I think those are probably the two syndromes which are common enough here and characteristic enough to make you think of an antibody. And that's, again, a good example of where you group by the clinical features and then you can diagnose specific antibodies, make specific cancer associations. And it's that triad, that cancer and specific cancer, because of course, as Sophie said, there's a much higher lifetime prevalence of of all cancer. So it's specific cancer, antibody and the syndrome. That triad helps you gain certainty that your clinical diagnosis is in the right ballpark. 
Thank you. That's that's really, really helpful. And I should mention to listeners that the table one in the paper, if you have reference to it, covers that really beautifully with a, a spectrum of demographic tumour frequency, associated tumour types and predominant associated syndromes for a lot of the of the syndromes we're talking about. Could I check with you, am I, am I broadly correct into dividing these syndromes into the traditional onconeuronal uh, antibodies, which are largely intracellular targets and I think always, if not almost always, associated with A cancer? And then a separate sort of emerging, you describe exploding field of cell surface antibody syndromes, which are sometimes associated cancers, but perhaps not always. Are those distinct groups? That's pretty much the way that we've structured both the review and the way that we think about these disorders. Almost all of the traditional onconeuronal antibodies are intracellular, but there are some exceptions, such as the GLUR1 and GLUR5, which are extracellular antigens, and also um, TRA and DNER, which are extracellularly expressed. And then with those, almost all all of, of those will have an associated cancer, um, may not be there at presentation, may even be detected sometimes several years after um, the neurological syndrome comes on. But there is that robust association. And then the more recent, as Swash says, explosion of uh, surface neuronal um, targets, it's important to remember that some of those do have a quite strong link with malignancy. So the classic one, of course, is NMDA, receptor encephalitis and ovarian teratoma. Um, and that's seen in probably around 30% of, of women with this condition. And it's really important to look very hard for an ovarian teratoma in these cases, because sometimes they can be extremely small and very difficult to pick up on imaging. But others of them are also associated, such as Casper 2 and a link with thymoma, particularly in patients with Morvan syndrome and um, GABA-A and GABA-B can have a link as well. So um, I think that's quite a good way of of dividing um, the two groups. And then just one very brief thing to add to that is that I suppose the GAD patients almost form the counterexample. So it's an intracellular antibody, or at least thought to be predominantly intracellular. The antigen may be able to get to the surface at times, that's still controversial, but they tend not to have tumours in the main. So while an oversimplification, I, I think there are, there are counterexamples to both, but I think you're right, Amy, that that's a really helpful structure to, to hang your hat on in, in routine practice. Thanks, that's fantastic. And you went through the, um, the mechanism very clearly in the previous podcast for the cell surface uh, antibodies, in particular the example of NMDA encephalitis. But I, I found it very difficult to understand how an antibody to an intracellular target can be certainly directly pathogenic and and I think you say that that it probably isn't what do you think is going on with these onconeuronals with the intracellulars what do you think the mechanism of disease is yes I suppose the convention would be um, as you say that the antibodies are not pathogenic although there are arguments that um, antibodies can be taken up into cells in a non-specific way and then um, so in a non-target specific way so for example with their FC portion um, and then have an effect on intracellular proteins. That's that's. There are several reports claiming that, but I agree with you. I think it's probably not the case in the human diseases, and certainly passive transfer of the antibodies confers no phenotype in these diseases, as far as we know. So most people would then say that the T cells mediate that disease. You know, what we're seeing is clearly antigen-specific. So there's a dominant antigen, which is... 
breached immune tolerance in some way. And then it would make sense if some of these conditions were very difficult to reverse because there's been cell death, and that may well be due to CD8 more than CD4, one would propose, so cytotoxic T cells going and directly seeing the antigens presented on the cell surface by MHC molecules, and then they can be t- those cells are specifically targeted. So it's still antigen-specific, but perhaps more likely to be T-cell-mediated than antibody-mediated. That's incredibly helpful. And final sort of question, follow-up point on that is, if your antibody and your antigen are specific, why do you think you have such a, an overlapping and, and varied phenotype? Just looking at your table one again, you've got um, significant overlap between uh, cerebellar syndromes and encephalitis syndromes with different antibodies. Why do you think you get such varied phenotypes? Well, I guess, I guess it, it, it makes sense that many of these antigens are expressed by the same cells or at least the same regions of the brain. And so, and so you will end up with similar phenotypes regardless of the precise nature of the antigen. I suppose to turn it on its head a bit, most patients with, say, a Yo syndrome will have cerebellar involvement. Most patients with a Hugh syndrome will have cerebellar or temporal lobe involvement. So I guess that diversity isn't huge, but does seem to confer relative specificity syndromes across the antigens. Yeah, great. So for those clinicians who are seeing these sort of day to day, I think, first of all, I wanted to to see if you'd pull out particular broad characteristics like tempo of decline or, or perhaps perceived frailty of a patient that would point you to thinking about these sooner or perhaps specific uh, investigation findings that that should highlight clinicians to think about a paraneoplastic syndrome? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think you're right. It's the rapidity, really, that makes you think of most of these syndromes. And then the localization. So I think if you if you have a, for example, a cerebellar syndrome with a neuronopathy, your, your differential is really limited outside of that context. So I think it's those two things that go together. Of course, the age group, and then trying to fit it together with the presence or the absence of, of potentially systemic symptoms of a tumour. But usually those are absent because the tumours, as I say, are quite small in these diseases. And it's one of the interesting features of these conditions that the neurological syndrome tends to come first. If you've got a um, an atypical encephalitis or a, a fulminant encephalitis that you're concerned about, is it important that neurologists know which antibodies they're sending for specifically? Do you have a, a first tier and a second tier? Or is this when it's really helpful to pick up the phone and, and call someone? Or is it more helpful, in fact, to describe the clinical syndrome on your request form? I think a bit of all of that, in a way. We, we do tend to screen in a a fairly targeted but quite broad manner because we don't want to to miss a diagnosis. But on the other hand, if you cast your net too wide, you do risk picking up something that's potentially clinically irrelevant. And that goes back to the point that was discussed earlier about the commercial testing um, for these paraneoplastic antibodies. Um, It's quite inaccurate. In fact, uh, only about 40% of um, those commercial line blots or, or dot blots are confirmed by other methods. That's one thing to consider. The other thing is that sometimes it can take quite a while for the test to come back, particularly if you were suspecting something maybe that isn't a standard test and might need to go off to a research lab. So it might be in a position where you would need to do some empirical treatment without waiting for an antibody result. And the classic example would be something like an MDA receptor encephalitis 
or less paranea plastic, but something like LGI-1, where you've got the phasobrachodystonic seizures, which are fairly pathognomic. Um, so you can make a confident clinical diagnosis and early treatment is of the essence. I like your last idea, Amy, that, that the clinical features on a form, say, or with communication with a lab could be then utilised in trying to um, optimise the, the testing for that individual patient. Because the tests are growing so rapidly, really, that, that even we're struggling to keep up with it um, in terms of the number of tests and which antigen to, to detect, really. So that would be a great way to do this. Um, at the, unfortunately, at the, at the moment, that's not possible. But I'm sure there will be ways in the future. And I think that's something we should really think about. Thanks. And on a really practical note, what should we send? Where should we send it? Do we send blood and CSF? Does that need to be taken at the same time? And is there anything that we perhaps might not think about sending at the same time that we should include? So I think it's really important to test both serum and CSF. Um, there are some exceptions where serum is more sensitive, but broadly speaking, particularly for the onconeuronal, um, CSF antibodies are an important confirmatory um, step as well as serum testing. I think ideally as close together as possible, but you know they don't have to be taken on the same day. I think one of the things to be aware of is if you're sending the samples for antibody testing to a commercial lab, it will often just be run on the line or, or blot dot, which is kind of like um, an emergency mobilized fixed antigen on a kind of um, biological substrate and it's not as sensitive or as specific as other methods so it's good to ask for a confirmatory form of testing to be done so sometimes labs will offer confirmatory testing by immunofluorescence for example so if it's only been tested on a line or dot blot um, then that potentially is open to not being such an accurate result. And of course, always be guided by the clinical um, presentation as well. It's so important to feel that the, the clinical presentation does fit with that antibody finding. I mean, some of the tests such as Couch 11 are, are only available on a research basis in any case, um, but also research labs that are running kind of programmes into these entities may be able to help with additional testing or interpretation of results that are perhaps coming back and seeming a bit confusing. Um, and certainly in our lab, we are doing investigations into how we can improve the testing for these antigens. So we are interested to receive serum and CSF from clinicians to be able to help with that. So is that in this, if you see a sort of atypical presentation that you're not quite sure about, you maybe say, or would you like the serum and CSF to investigate this? Yeah, sure. And even if you've had a typical case, but the, the result came back negative and you're thinking, I wasn't quite expecting this. You know, I've yeah. got, you know, say, I don't know, a lady with ovarian cancer and a cerebellar syndrome. Seems like it would be yo to me. You know, we would be very happy to evaluate that further and see if we can help. So get in touch with the lab at that point. Yeah, just to just to flesh that out a bit, Sophie's been doing a study recently where we found that quite a few samples tested in a routine testing laboratory for, for example, LGI-1 antibodies will be false negatives. So the patients will still have antibodies. And when you see the patient, it can be quite confusing. For example, you'll think, oh, disease activity is over. And certainly one of the reasons these patients have reached our attention is because they have been weaned off their immunotherapy early in the context of a falsely reassuring negative result. So I think there are, there are reasons to really think this could directly influence clinical practice quite commonly, actually. 
I'm just going to focus in on on the CSF findings as one of often the first result that we get back. And you mentioned that there's it's quite common to see an inflammatory pleocytosis and perhaps positive oligoclonal bands. I wondered if I could just push you a little on on what's a, a typical number of cells. Are there any parameters that would would be you know would, would are there any number that would be too many cells or or any parameters that would put you off this as a diagnosis? I don't think there are strict parameters, but I'd say sort of roughly between 20 to 100 cells would be a good number. And obviously you want to have done your infection screen and made sure that's been um, ruled out if you are worried about the cells for other reasons. But as table three um, shows, almost all of these um, conditions will present with a a pleocytosis in the CSF and often oligoclonal bands um, as evidence for intrathecal synthesis. So that's a really helpful paraclinical investigation that can help support a um, working diagnosis while further confirmatory tests are being awaited. Thank you. That's, That's really, really helpful. We touched on a moment ago that the uh, duration of starting treatments when perhaps you're waiting for antibodies to come back. How long would they typically take to come back? And would you typically start anything for, I'm thinking more of the onconeuronal group. Is there anything that you would say to a patient or or potentially think about starting as treatment when you're waiting for those to come back? Yeah, I mean, turnaround time can vary depending on the specific lab. So something between two and six weeks, which is broadly incompatible with using them to guide clinical care directly because I think in those two to six weeks I think you really have to have thought about starting treatment beforehand so when it comes to the tumors I think it might be often a little easier in the sense that you can do a scan of the body and if you see a tumor you're kind of on a bound to take it out anyway so you're probably doing nothing wrong in that time and then I think the decision is really short course of steroids. And in my book, that's almost always a yes. And the odd occasion you get it wrong, you've probably done no harm. And that buys you at least a week of giving it, and then probably at least another week of monitoring response. If you're pretty confident, just go straight on, I think. Go straight on to either plasma exchange, typically with the surface antibodies, although there's a long literature on doing it with the, and, and a lot of experience in doing it with the paraneoplastic ones, the intracellular ones, but I'm less convinced of why that would be biologically useful. And then thinking about a more cytotoxic treatment. And we're not shy of using cyclophosphamide in, in these patients because I think, um, you know, you've you probably missed a lot of the boat already. A lot of the cells are already gone. Certainly we know that with, for example, Hugh and Yo syndromes. But I still think otherwise you end up down a, quite nihilistic pathway and it is worth giving patients a chance of stabilizing and I think that is best done through a aggressive early cytotoxic approach. That's really helpful and and leads us very nicely to talking about sort of potential treatments and as you have done. Do you think that as you say the damage has already been done and so in in that group it's less likely that immunotherapy will work? So in some of the syndromes, certainly that is the case. And and we know that, for example, if you take a cerebellum of a Yo patient, the Purkinje cells are gone. It's really quite distinctive neuropathologically. So we know that in some, but as Sophie was saying earlier, with some of the surface-directed antibodies, that's almost certainly not happening in the same way. Um, it's likely to be antibody-driven, not T-cell-driven. It's, it's almost certainly not happening in the same way. And 
I, I can recall patients with, say, Casper 2 antibodies and a tumour who, who only get diagnosed, say, sometimes 18, 24 months down the line, and they get a lot better, a lot better. So I don't think there's any doubt that those patients are worth going on with treatment and, and not being at all nihilistic about their care. Yeah. And you mentioned a couple of the intracellular exceptions that, that are potentially immunotherapy responsive to, to be aware of. Yeah, well, um, MAR2, which often presents with um, testicular malignancies in men in their uh, sort of 40s or thereabouts, is known to be immunotherapy responsive. And the men can do well with tumour resection and immunotherapy. So that's definitely one to be aware of. And as Sarosh mentioned, even some of the others, such as um, Hugh and Yo, which are, are, are traditionally not thought of as terribly immunotherapy, therapy responsive, you may offer a chance of disease stabilisation. Um, and that's important, um, but also important potentially to be honest um, with the patients about uh, the outcome that, that you can expect. So for example, I can recall a Yo patient that made a very good recovery from breast cancer, full remission, but had had a, a typical quite explosive onset of cerebellar ataxia over about six weeks. Um, and many years on was still dreadfully disabled in a wheelchair and with diplopia that was very persistent. Um, so while that lady's disease was not progressing any further, it's just something to be mindful of when discussing the likely outcome that potentially there may not be that much improvement in some of these conditions, but we are hoping potentially to stop further worsening, which is very important. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, just brings us back to the importance of good communication and putting the patient first. I wondered just briefly if I could ask you both to think of any particular pitfalls that you think we should be wary of in clinical practice when we're looking at these antibodies, false, false positives perhaps with a, a spurious screen or, or, or something like that. Yeah, sure. There's certainly, there's certainly three or four good papers now on this um, from more than one group. And those papers highlight that certain antibodies are prone to false positive results on the blots. And we've seen that with ZIC4 and RI quite often. And I think those are two of them to watch out for. There are other examples and those papers detail them. But certainly it's really a case of going back to, does it fit the clinical scenario? Is this the right kind of patient? So for example, the, the ZIC4 false positive we saw most recently was a patient with a subcortical cognitive syndrome over about three years, which was slowly progressive. And so it really didn't fit the pattern. And she had marked depression. And I think that explained most of her cognitive syndrome. And we could really just put the ZIC4 down to being uh, not, not clinically relevant. And some of the tests that we're developing in the lab really helped to clarify that. So for example, um, I won't go into their details, they're not published yet. But we have some assays which I think are going to be able to help clarify in those paraneoplastic, in those intracellular antigens, the, the, the real positive ones. And I think those assays will really help going forwards. Um, and we're in the process of developing that. And for example, in that lady, those assays showed that she didn't have ZIC4 antibodies. Thanks. I mean, as, as you say, it comes back to your clinical review, doesn't it? The clinical phenotype and putting that in the context of the patient. Were there any other pitfalls that you think clinicians should be attentive to when uh, approaching these syndromes? 
Well, almost the opposite of what was just being discussed can be sometimes a scenario in NMDA receptor antibody encephalitis, where potentially um, with a, a young woman presenting with suggestive syndromes and uh, a mass on, on the ovary that can sometimes be potentially reported as a simple luteal cyst, for example. But in certain situations with a suggestive um, presentation, that's something maybe to, to query and take forward to expert radiological review because it, it, it with a suggestive um, neuropsychiatric presentation the pretest probability of that being an ovarian teratoma is very high um, and that's definitely not something that you would want to miss um, and in that scenario antibodies are potentially awaited so it's important to gain confirmatory findings um, to be able to proceed with appropriate clinical management yeah so I'm hearing again, come back to your clinical phenotype and, and trust your assessment. And also, you know, have have a good radiologist who you can rely on to help with clarifying some of the bits that we wouldn't be at all good at looking at. So lungs and thymuses and, and as Sophie says, pelvis. So I think that is really helpful. And, and certainly some of the commonest errors I've seen in the NMDA world is to is to assume that a cyst is a luteal cyst or a hemorrhagic cyst and not think about it as almost certainly being a teratoma given the pretest probability of that patient having a relatively uncommon neurological syndrome. Yes. Thank you both for for such clear and and really practical uh, answers. I'm really keen to use this podcast to encourage and and inspire upcoming and, and training neurologists. And I wonder if you could both tell me what it was that brought you into neuroimmunology. For me, that's very clear. I was an SHO in London and I really couldn't decide which subspecialty I was most interested in within neurology. So I knew I wanted to do neurology, but I really like cognitive. I really like movement disorders. I really like seizures. I couldn't decide which specialty. And then I saw a patient, I remember them really well, on the ward who had all three, of course, in one entity. So, And then it got even better because after about a few days of investigations and so on, it was decided that she should get immunotherapy and she started to improve. And then I thought, wouldn't it be exciting to go into a neurological specialty where you get to see all the phenotypes you're interested in, but actually also get to treat patients and see them get better. And now having done almost 10 years as a consultant, it's really the most rewarding bit about being in clinic is to see people who get better they don't get completely better. And I would go so far as to say that none get completely better, but they do improve quite dramatically. And a number of them can go back to living pretty normal lives, which is very, very rewarding as a clinician seeing these patients in a neurological setting, particularly. Similar to to Sarosh in that um, I always wanted to do neurology and I was pretty sure I wanted to do something in the sort of neuroinflammatory milieu. Um, And then I came to Oxford and actually was pretty inspired by being part of the group here um, and seeing the exciting science um, that went on and how this field is really evolving and the opportunities to to learn and and, and find new things. And I did a project in my ACF on mainly patients with LGI-1 antibody encephalitis. And I actually found these patients, you know, pretty much as as Swash has delineated, extremely fascinating. And you just learn so much and and the interesting things that you you pick up and, and small details that then can lead to 
really interesting um, clinical characteristics. So I, I kind of felt that I'd found my niche. And um, I, it's also, um, as um, Prof Irani said, very uh, rewarding to think that you're potentially making a, a, a at least partially curative intervention and be able to see uh, those impacts with patients coming back to clinic and, and being so much better months down the line. Well, they're fantastic reasons. <laughs> and it's certainly a really exciting part of neurology and neuroscience. I wonder if I can finally ask you where you think the answers for the next sort of explosion of discovery are going to be. Where do you think we should be looking to try and understand these syndromes better? I'm more and more clear that it's the underlying immunology. So I think there is an opportunity to understand um, the way the antibodies interact with their targets and various groups are exploiting the neuroscience to try and get at that. So for me, it's, it's always about two things that the patients say. The patients always talk about side effects and they always talk about why did my disease occur? The second is a pretty much universal question in clinic. So I think the immunology is the only way to answer that. And we've got a few papers that are ready to go out, which start to address how the B cells in these patients are predisposing individuals to these diseases or not. And I think that's a really, really exciting area. Can we can we push this so far back that we understand the very onset of these illnesses? And of course, that would lead to more targeted therapies, which would potentially address the side effect issue. Now, I think that's not over optimistic. And I'm really encouraged that in the next 10 years, we'll get towards that kind of a set of findings. That's wonderful. There are so many more things I could ask you, but I'm, gonna, I'm going to tie it up there. It has been absolutely wonderful to, to speak to you both. And, and thank you for practical and passionate advice and for giving us so much time and, and such expertise. I would really encourage listeners to read the article. It's already available online and it's coming in print very soon. And it contains much more than we've covered here today, uh, in particular some of those tables I mentioned, uh, which are really useful for, for clinical reference. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe on your preferred platform with either Apple or Google Podcasts or Spotify, and you'll receive these monthly podcasts direct to your device. Uh, follow us at Practical Neurol on Twitter and you'll find uh, Professor Irani and the Oxford Autoimmune Neurology Group at ANG underscore Oxford uh, to follow them. We'd also be really grateful for your feedback via the PM podcast page on iTunes. And I will finish there with enormous thanks once again to Dr. Vinks and Professor Irani. Thank you very much. <laughs>